Well, this is going to be an exciting episode of Out of the Main. Uh, John, how you doing? I'm doing all right. I feel like we're going to have a flag thrown on us for the next uh, 40 minutes or so. We haven't had a flag in a while, so we have to dedicate one whole episode to getting a flag thrown on us for everything we got wrong. Yeah, this entire episode is a flag um, because I listened back to our, our episode um that we did an album focus on the Christopher Cross yep. album. And I remember there were so many questions we had and so many things that we got wrong, including the cringy moments that you and I kept saying, Michael O'Martian. Yep. Yeah. We fixed that because we had only read his name in the past. Right. right? Yep. It's so somebody corrected us. Um, not too long after that, it, it wasn't our guest today, but our guest today did write to us and say, uh, well, there are a couple of things that I could maybe fill in some holes, answer some questions, maybe clarify. And of course we took him up on the offer. It just took us forever to kind of get it coordinated, but here we are. And we have all the way from Zurich, Switzerland, none other than the drummer from the Christopher Cross band and others, Tommy Taylor. Tommy, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, guys. It's great to be here with you. And it's really super I just got to dive right into one of the flags that got thrown on us. And in case you're wondering, Tommy, that's a recurring motif. When one of us gets a detail wrong that we find out later, the flag comes in, we get penalized 15 yards, and there we go. So, But the the biggest eye-opener to me was that I always thought, because it was customary of the era, that Christopher Cross was a person around which they assembled a band of session players and that's only partially true because there are session players on on the records that we all know and love. But Christopher Cross was not necessarily just a person. Christopher Cross was a band, correct? That's correct. Yes. I mean, um, I, I joined the band in 1977. Uh, I got a call from uh, their manager who I had been friends with for a number of years. And they were going to make a move to Austin uh, from Houston. They were doing a house gig in Houston at an apartment complex nightclub. And they were going to make a drummer change. And my foray into the thing was to do a free demo session uh, in the studio for a chance to be in the band. So that's kind of how I came on board. Interesting. So, but for the Christopher Cross album, we do see some familiar session cats. So my confusion was, how do I, I made no distinction to the fact that Tommy and Andy are in the band and then there's session cats that come in and play with them. Right. The thing was, you know, I mean, I mean, you know, we will always assume that we were working as a band towards a band record deal. And, you know, we never thought it was going to be any different. In fact, there's, you know, an article in the Austin paper, you know, three months before we went to record the first line on it is Christopher Cross is not a person. Christopher Cross is a four piece, you know, rock band. Yeah. So, um, you know, that was kind of our thing when things, you know, came down to the legalities of it, you know, uh, the label signed Chris separately and didn't sign us. So we were essentially still in the band, but not legally signed to the label. So that kind of left a lot of doors open for things to change. And, you know, it mid session, they decided that he would be known as Christopher Cross. That wasn't even part of the original thing, you know? So, um, you know, but we were working as a band. We were working on Chris's material. That was the whole reason for us, you know, to, to, to be there is for Chris's songs. Obviously he's the lead singer and the, and the songwriter of the group. Um, you know, we were supporting ourselves by doing cover music rather than going and working day jobs. We played fraternity parties and, and, uh, casuals and things like that. And, I sang a third of the material, Chris sang a third of the material, and Rob and Andy split the other third. So, you know, that's kind of how that went. Now, one of the other things that I learned about you, Tommy, obviously, I got to know you as a drummer. 
Um, but as I went back and kind of reviewed your your history, your Wikipedia page, and some of the materials you sent us, you play multiple instruments, which we'll get to later with the new record you're working on. But drums, guitar, keys, vocals, right? All of that? Not really a keyboard player. I, I would never... No, not keyboard? Oh, I wish I did. That's one of the things I really wish I did play, but I, unfortunately at this point I don't, but, uh, you know, hopefully... Besides the fact that your quote fame, let's say, came from a, as a drummer, do you feel that that it was is your primary instrument, or is that secondary to something else like the vocals or guitar? Well, I, no, I mean, I, you know, two weeks before I got the call to join Christopher Cross or potentially join Christopher Cross, I was leaving the drum kit oh. to be stand-up hmm. singer. Uh, I had a band on paper with some people that later went on to become pretty notable. And, and uh, you know, that was I didn't have any original material, but I wanted to stand up and sing because I always felt like, you know, uh, I was going to have more mileage out front in front of a band rather than behind the band. You know, the lead singer drummer thing yeah. had not been terribly successful don henley and the guy in the standells you know that's about it the triumphs you know, so. maybe <laughs> well maybe I know collins but yeah. i mean it wasn't really you know at that point he was that wasn't even a thing yet so we assume you have good dance moves then well i, I don't know no i don't know that, you know I'm, I, I'm certainly not a frontman uh you know like paul rogers okay. or anything like that like I throw the mic stand 42 feet up in the air and not and look at the guy in the audience and catch yeah. it with one hand so, <laughs> You know, I I mean, I think I've I've always been a singer. You know, I always wanted to be a singer. And, uh, you know, I mean, the talk was in the, you know, back in the day, I mean, Chris said, um, you know, let's get my, you know, let's let's get our record done, my record done, and then we'll do one for you, you know. And I always assumed that, well, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. I mean, Chris likes my voice. And he, I always thought, well, man, it would be pretty cool to have Chris writing songs for me, you know, because he could certainly, I mean, Chris is the kind of songwriter – he can write for other people, you know, pretty easily at that, especially at that in those days. It wouldn't have been a problem for him. But you know, I mean, things things kind of took off in a lot of different directions. We didn't get there. Quick tri- trivia question of the day, John. Do you know Christopher Cross's original last name? Isn't it Geppert or something to that? Yeah, yeah, something like yeah. that. Yeah, okay. Interesting. So I, I was about yesterday years old uh, when I learned that. <laughs> well. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, do you mind if I ask a question about uh, the thing that's been uh, gnawing at me the the whole time? No. So, is it uh, you want to ask me or Tommy? Uh, well, well, you're both Tommy. So, um, <laughs> Taylor, that is. So, yeah. obviously, my love, my where I started playing, and the the love of music to me, I'm always drummer focused, and you probably picked that up from the episode that we did. And so there were multiple times throughout our listen through of that debut record where I commented on what you were playing. And um, I hope I was properly complimentary, but. Oh, absolutely. One one of the things that really caught my attention, which I'd like you to explain is how the part for sailing came about. And the thing that really caught my ear is on the chorus, the flams that sort of accentuate the syncopation of the melody and all that. And I remember raving about that and then finding out after the fact when you talked to us that there's a Jeff Percaro connection to that whole drum part. And it just it just feeded my own enjoyment because I'm such a huge Jeff Percaro fan. So can you explain all of the evolution of that? Yeah, likewise. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, Jeffrey was uh, certainly somebody that I listened to. I mean, I, I wasn't 
you know, I've been mistaken for Jeff a lot because obviously it's the usual suspects on the record other than Andy and Rob and I. So everybody just assumed if they didn't read the credits that I'm Jeff Picard, which is very flattering, <laughs> you know, but I, I get letters every year. People that I, I've been listening to this record for my whole life. I learned how to play drums by playing along to you. I thought you were Jeff Picaro. You know, I mean, and I'm going like, well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of a problem for me, <laughs> you know, because obviously he has plenty of notoriety and I don't necessarily have very much. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Jeff, you know, sailing was a very difficult tune. I was not a ballad player. I came from a very rock standpoint in my, you know, musical taste, although we did cross into a lot of pop stuff that that's kind of where our common ground was with Rob and Chris and Andy and I. Um, but I was a harder player and I wasn't really a ballad guy. And Rob Muir was also a drummer, our keyboard player. And, mm. you know, sailing was not, you know, I mean, sailing became this thing. Uh, for us, it wasn't that. It never was that. I mean, we, it was just another one of Chris's songs. We never thought sailing would be popular. We would have, I mean, we would have bet millions that it wouldn't have been. Um, we liked the song. It was never my favorite song. I, I mean, I've grown, that's kind of like, you know, the one, like you said on about spinning. It's kind of the one for me that, like, well, yeah, I kind of dig it now after the fact because I can look at it with a different set of eyes. Yeah. But um, so, you know, Robin kind of showed me the part, you know, I mean, and I kind of changed the bass drum up a little bit. And, you know, it was a 16th note thing with the cross stick. And then, uh, but, you know, and that where I've always, those kind of the punches like that, I was basically, Rob just had me do a, a, a kind of a, a, a left-right thing between the rise cymbal and the, and the toms. And it wasn't very strong. And, you know, and I didn't know what to play. I wasn't a ballad player. I mean, you know, if you want me to play Cold as Ice by Foreigner, I can figure it out. I could sing it at the same time. But, I, but I, you know, as far as the ballads, it was a weak part for me. It's actually one of my favorite things to do now and one of my strengths. But um, mm -hmm. so we were having a trouble getting the song. The, the main thing about that song is it's got to just be steady because it's the hypnotic thing of the guitar that's happening. The drums are not really uh, the focus. You know, it's more about the lyric and the dreaminess and the whole thing. So I was just going along playing, but we were having a difficult time keeping it steady and 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 making it the, the track speak. And it was just one of those weird moments where, you know, I think Omardian probably, uh, you know, thought, well, let's bring Jeff in. So Jeff comes down to play that song and another piece that we recorded later called Marianne. And, uh, you know, I mean, he played my kit, you know, he didn't bring his kit in because they wanted, we were still a band and everybody thought like a band. So we wanted to keep the sound consistent because I'd worked a long time getting the drum sound. Jeff played a little heavy handed on my tiny little kit and, you know, and what he was playing, you know, we listened back to it and even, you know, Omardian and Chris and everybody just went, well, you know, I mean, anything Jeff plays is going to be great, but it's like, that's not it. And it was like, wow, okay, so I didn't get it, and Jeff didn't get it. And so, you know, we went on recording other songs, and then we decided we would go back and revisit it. And I basically took, you know, the things that I thought were really cool about what he had played on the track and morphed that into what I was already playing with the track and used some of the sensibilities like, okay, well, I need to speak more, but not quite as much as he was doing. 
So that's kind of how that part evolved. I mean, he played those flams, so I played those. That's where they came from. But the rest of it was pretty much what I had been doing in the past. I don't remember the rest of the parts. Ah, amazing. <laughs> wow, what a story. I would say au contraire on the people aren't really listening to the drums, though, because you may recall, uh, Tommy, if you listen back, I said, go through this album one more time and just listen to the rhythm section. Because what you and Andy put together, I, in my own experience, get totally overlooked yeah. because the songwriting's so good. Yeah. Then I just listen just to the two of you groove, and it's like, wow, there is something special. And I don't even know that this sound exists on any other artist. Yeah, I go to the kick drum on uh, Ride Like the Wind. I can just listen to the kick drum on that <laughs> Ride Like the Wind. another thing you know rob that was the first song i ever played with christopher cross i mean i heard the demos of other songs that that we had done but that was the first thing i when when i met them and we set up to rehearse for the 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 demo session the next day that's the first song i ever played and i was already blown away with the band and, and the material i wanted the gig really bad and uh when i heard that song it was just you know chris played a little bit of the riff you know, and and I, I, I Robin explained to me, you know, I had the six, the the you know, the triplets on the hi hat thing, and I went like, we, you know, Chris kind of played the da 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 da. da. I went, okay, stop, let's just play it, you know, and we jumped right in, as I recall, and it was like, you know, I, the whole time I'm playing it, listening to him sing and listening to the parts, I'm just, I'm free. <laughs> I mean, I, because it's so much better than anything else they had, and they already had amazing songs. And I just went like, "That's that's it. That's the number one wow. right there." I knew it then, you know. And uh, but there were some things that happened. You know, um, I've told this story before. There was a local band in, in Austin that was probably one of the better bands that ever came out of there that did original music back before the Cosmic Country thing, and uh, they were called Genesee. And, and they had a song called Whiskey Still, and it had a line in it, got such a long way to go. Oh. And the drummer, Chuck Rogers, was one of the greatest players to ever play in Austin. I mean, I, he's one of my heroes. And he went, and he, and they, let's see, has it, uh, got a long way to go. And that's where I took that from. And I've got. I said, well, if Chris is going to go, got such a long way to go. Yeah. I stole it right from Chuck because I said, I got to throw this in here. It's got to happen because that's, it's going to pick it. And so that's where that came from, you know, and, and, uh, you know, the part was just, it evolved over time. I mean, I used to, the demo, Chris has released the demo, you know, on his complete works. Uh, the first thing I ever recorded with the band and, um, you know, I was very minimalistic in those days, and that's kind of probably how I got the gig because I didn't play enough to get in the way. Uh, and I evolved into playing a little bit more and being a little more artistic. But, the, the you know, my bass drum part, that, that was a very simple groove. I played one and three on the kick drum, two and four on the snare, the 16th on the thing, uh, on the hi-hat. And so, you know, Omarion was really intent on having the four on the floor bass drum, and we resisted. I mean, there must be seven you know, two inch reels of that song tracked, you know, because it was, it was disco. 
It's like, mm. we had just survived disco. We weren't going back there. We were going to do for them. not going to turn us into a disco band. You know, and he said, you know, he, he even drew a little thing that said, submit with an arrow, you know, an arrow <laughs> pointing down, you know, stuck it on the studio wall. <laughs> you know, we friendly argued. I mean, we were, he knew yeah. what he was getting into because he was working with a band. He wasn't working with studio guys that he could just tell what to play. And and he he liked the way we sounded and wanted us to, to be, uh, you know, in that thing. And, um, I mean, it, it turned out as a, a big hybrid. We did a lot of different versions of, he wanted me to play, uh, four on the floor through the whole thing, you know, even through the, got such a long way to go parts. So I was going, Oh man, it's got to open up, you know, got mm-hmm. such a long way to go, you know, but, uh, yeah. you know, it, it was just, uh, what we finally arrived at was definitely magic. And I'm glad that I'm glad he's, he, you know, he stayed the course with us and that we were able to evolve it into that fantastic track. Cause I mean, it's really, it's really fantastic. You know I mean? It is. Um, and interesting thing is that was the first time I'd ever played along with a metronome um, that also he wanted very, very steady. A lot of the tracks on that record are not cut to a click. That one is. And uh, you know, one thing I'd learned about, I was so green. I mean, I was only 22 years old. The only studio work I'd ever done before that was demos with, with the band, you know, and uh, one of the first things I learned was don't ever stop because you don't know if you if you screwed something up or not. So, you know, just keep going. But that was the first time I, he had the Lindrum set up. It was the first one of the first Lindrum machines ever. And it was just going. And I'm playing along with it. You know, he's not listening to the click track. He's just listening to the band play. And at that point, Rob is tracking the grand piano on that. He got replaced with with Amartya. And I was the only person hearing the drum machine, not the rest of the band. They're playing along to me like they normally would in a recording situation. And uh, so somewhere in the fills on the end, I've got, I'm 180 degrees out from the click track, mm-hmm. you know, because I rushed a fill and it's like, I just got back to where it's playing backwards to me. And I just gritted my teeth and kept playing. And we go into the control room and Michael's going, yeah, man, that's happening, man. I'm going, um, <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't, I, there's a problem. He went, what do you mean? What's the problem? I said, well, like at the end, I'm not with the click track, you know, I'm I'm not with the drum machine. I'm 180 degrees out. He looked at me, said, you looked at Did anybody hear anything? I went, (laughs) they said, no, I said, it's done. They never, (laughs) you know, but I know it's there because I did, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Did you feel Tommy? Like, I can't think of the Christopher Cross band without thinking of Michael O'Marty and as like a band member as well. Like, did he feel like he was part of the band with you, you know, guys? Michael was so great, you know, because he, I mean, obviously he's, I mean, oh, to me, okay, I'm going to be, I'm, I'm, I mean, I could say, I could talk about Michael O'Marty for a whole show. Um, you know, to me, uh, and there's others obviously, but there's, there's three really significant piano players in the world to, uh, of pop music to me, Floyd Kramer, <laughs> Elton John and Michael O'Mardian. And then there's the next year. I mean, Michael is so fantastic, but he's the most unassuming guy in the world. You know, he just, he just sounds like that. I mean, you listen to Dr. Wu. It's like, my God, without him, it wouldn't even be a song. It's just so brilliant what he plays. And uh, so, you know, he came on board. Rob Muir was, you know, a good keyboard player. You know, he'd been with us. We did all this stuff as a band. We did all those songs, you know, uh, and all the arrangements that you hear, you know, pretty much we had already laid all that out. Michael just kind of iced the cakes. Some of them were uh, were advanced a little further than others. But, um, you know, 
when we started out, even before he started tracking grand piano with us, most of the time we were playing, he's not in the control. He's in the cutting room with headphones on, moving, dancing, pointing, doing as like a director, but he's the vibe. He's mold, he's learning us and molding with us, you know, and it was just a fantastic experience. You know, I mean, he really, you're, you're right on because he really was like another band member. And then he started playing some piano and Rob, you know, I mean, that was a tough thing for him because all of a sudden he's relegated over to playing Rhodes or synthesizers or whatever. But O'Martin was such a brilliant, you know, grand piano player. It's like, what are you going to do? Here's the guy that played on all your favorite records and he's, he's willing to track the tracks. And yeah, you know, he's just got monster time. My, mm. I mean, he's so locked in. You don't need a click track because he played. Just listen to him. He's he's cutting the wake for you. So but <laughs> he he be, he became, you know, integral. He became part of the band on those sessions. It, it built slowly, but by the end, he was in it. And then about that. It's funny. We'll talk about that, too. But at the very end, he wasn't. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Well, one of the things about this record, as we're still on it, uh, we talk a lot about Yacht Rock in general, pretty much the West Coast stuff, has that, as we call it in quotes, the pristine recording nature of it. I mean, I put the sound of that record right up there with Steely Dan's Asia. It's different, but I put it on par. And that starts, in my opinion, it always, always starts with getting the drums sounding good from a recording and it also includes, obviously, the way the person plays, their, not just their time, but their consistency, but also the tuning, the prepping of the drums that you came in. So I have a couple of quick questions. How many toms were you using? Was it four? There's three right toms and one four tom. And, when, and that, okay. that kind of, you know, I mean, before that, nobody was really doing that, you know. <laughs> then after that, you saw that happen. Uh, you know, the drums, you know, that drum set was ordered especially from Sonar for that record. We postponed okay. the tracking of that record because the drums were stuck on a boat in Boston Harbor. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, what else? Um, so then you said you spent some time getting them right. Um, what can you recall from the tracking that you can remember, either how you prepped the drums or maybe the way that the room was prepped? Um, because there's so much clarity to it. There's right. not a lot mm. of room ringing. It's not that big roomy sound. What can you tell us about that? Well, if, I mean... The, you know, I had been uh, mentored by a guy in a band, another band that our manager managed, a, a guy from Fort Worth, Texas, named Gary Osier. And, uh, you know, he was an astonishingly great timekeeper, but he was one of the first guys locally that had live sound where the drums were like really out front and loud and um, mic'd up with a proper sound system. And so, you know, we got to be really close friends and I was basically just uh, following Gary's lead and doing a lot of things. And, and so my, when I went into the studio the night before we started tracking, Carlos Vegas drums were still there from the session that day. They hadn't torn them down yet. He had a Camco kit. He had a, a 24 inch bass drum, uh, a 10 by 14, a 12 by 15 rack Tom, 16 by 18, 18 by 20 floor Tom. Okay. That's the sound of the day. LA huge drums, 
big, you know, kind of kind of muffled up a little bit. I had a 14 by 18 kick drum, a five by eight, eight by 10, five by eight, six and a half by 10, eight by 12, 14 by 14 floor tom. Wow. They looked like a like one of those mini kits and they were all (laughs) mic'd under the toms were all mic'd underneath, not on over the top. And this is something that Chet and I developed that I took from Gary. The drums are tuned extremely below their fundamental. So it's like little bitty drums tuned way low. Okay. Wow. And, and uh, it's, you know, the thing is nobody, I mean, when, when people saw those drums, I mean, you know, we're in Warner brothers Amigo studios, you know, Randy Newman's recording next door with, with, you know, you know, with, 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 with Lenny and Russ, you know, and, and, you know, Teddy Templeman's down the hall. I mean, they're all these people. They would come into our session, stand there, listen to the playback, point at the drum kit, shake their heads and walk out. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. It happened every day for two weeks. I mean, people couldn't get over to what we had done with the sound of these drums. Now, Chet Himes, you know, I mean, Chet was pretty special. First of all, he was our engineer. The, 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 the whole thing leads back to this community a family type of thing. You don't bring your own engineer to your debut recording with Warner Brothers. (laughs) He did the mix too, right? He did the mix too. I mean, they thought so much of Chet Himes' sound that they put his name on the label. Wow. You know, I mean, it doesn't happen very often. It has happened, but not very often. Engineered and mixed by Chet Himes. That's a big deal to have your name on a record like that. Yeah. Well, I was going to change the subject just a little bit, but um, I was thinking back to one of the interesting stories that I'm privy to, courtesy of a text message from you, that I think our listeners would find interesting. And that was the guitar solo that was not recorded in the studio. I don't know if that was Eric Johnson's lead, but there was a guitar solo that was recorded at your house. Tell us that no, story. No, no, it wasn't recorded at, in Austin at the, at the concert studios where we had recorded all of our demos. Um, you know, Eric lived in Austin. You know, I've known Eric since I was 13 years old. <clears throat> and, uh, and Tomas Ramirez, um, Tomas Ramirez, the sax player that plays on Mistral Gigolo as well. Those were two people that, you know, especially for Chris, but we all, wanted to give we wanted to include them on the record because they're brilliant players and awesome players and we wanted to give them a shot at you know at being part of what we were creating i think and uh and so um the tracking was pretty much done i think this was probably in like late august early september and they took a break and came to austin and we cut those uh two solos at the concert um, with Chet and basically, you know, to my memory, it was Chet and me in the control room and Eric in the studio. And Chris was, you know, like he often would be out, you know, on the phone or doing what, whatever else. I mean, you know, Chris didn't micromanage situations like that, but it was really important because I loved Eric's playing. I was a huge Eric fan before I ever, that was one of the things that Chris and I had in common. We were both big Eric Johnson fans. No, I mean, that was not an easy track for people to play to. Neither Tomas nor Eric had a real easy time with that at first, you know, because it's kind of a slow tempo and, uh, you know, the, the changes are odd and it's in Chris's modal tuning and stuff. And, and uh, so, you know, I, you know, pretty much coached him through that whole thing until we got something that was really great 
And, you know, it's like, hey, Chris, come in and check this out. See what you think. And it was like, yeah, that's happening. You know, the same with Tomas. You know, Tomas was doing the same, same kinds of things. Like, what am I going to play on this? And uh, finally, with Tomas, I just said, Tomas, man, just make it sound like it's melting, you know? Mm-hmm. And there they played those things that you hear coming out of Eric Solway that just, that just melts into that note. And then just like really slow, sexy, melting kind of moody thing. And then he yes. goes off that jazz scat thing that he does. And it was like when he did that, I was like, oh my God, that's it. You know? Co produced and co arranged by Tommy Taylor. Well, uh, I don't know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, I mean, you know, it's like getting back to the arrangements, though. I mean, that was one of the benefits of, of, of the band, you know? I mean, Chris would bring the sketches of the songs. I mean, and, and then we just, we developed all our own parts immediately. I mean, we were so cohesive at a certain point that it was just like, like the, okay, I'll, the, the first time, you know, we ever played Never Be the Same. Uh, you know, we were playing at a, at a club called Mother Earth. Uh, it was a cover bar. Chris didn't really particularly enjoy playing there. Uh, the crowd was more of a rock crowd, and we kind of didn't play so much rock. Um, you know, and uh, but we would do medleys. You know, the whole thing about the, a gig like that at a club is to keep the beat going so the dancers stay on the dance floor. So I think we, you know, we used to do these things and we'd play like um, 1985 by Paul McCartney, you know, and then it would stop and the bass drum would keep going. And and in the interim, somebody would decide what the next song they were going to play would be. And Chris just started <laughs> playing those Todd Rundgren changes. Everybody just kind of fell in. I'm keeping the bass drums going. Then all of a sudden, we're like, no, the bass drum's not four on the floor. I changed it up to what you hear on the record. And he sang that song from beginning to end the first time while I'm on stage. We've never heard it before. And we played it. And then we took a break. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. I love those stories. I'm freaking out. I mean, I'm chasing Chris to the bar because we're out going to get a, you know, go get a, you know, some water or something for the break. I'm going, Chris, what, Chris, what was that? Oh, my God. That's the greatest song I've ever heard. That's going to be bigger than I like to win. That's, you know, I mean, it was really amazing. <laughs> yeah, of course. Chris just turned around and said, yeah, this is something I've been working on. But yeah, I mean, you know, but but that's kind of what the, the beauty of that band was. You know, we knew what we were doing and we knew Chris, how Chris wrote. And so we knew where to go when he would come up with something like that. And that's just kind of how those arrangements came about. You know, they just, they're, they're very band arrangements. And I think that's why that record sounds different. We had played those songs mostly, you know, uh, you know, for a long time before we recorded them. Um, I know you brought up on the last podcast about um, about uh, about never be the same and the modulation. That was Andy's idea, actually. Andy, Andy was the one who who who, who pitched the modulation for the last verse. Um, so there you go. So you didn't do that first time, right? You know, and so <laughs> oh, but the the thing is, when we got through with that song. Um, it didn't have a bridge, you know, it didn't have that solo section. And so, you know, I mean, Michael figured out pretty fast, like we need something there. So he just sat down at the piano and played them, you know, and we went like, oh, that's awesome. You know, I mean, we've got the guy that played all our favorite records right here. And he just like goes with his part in the middle. And uh, 
so we cut it, you know, and he said, uh, he said, uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. It's, we were going, God, that's just the greatest thing. He said, yeah, well, they'll never really figure out that it's the outro to Layla. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. Well, that's not vocal and melodies. I mean, lyric and melodies. But, but, but I mean, that's the changes. It's the outro. But I mean, the, the changes to begin with are it wouldn't have made any difference by Todd Run. Yeah. Well, now now everybody uses the same four chords anyway, so all that's out the window. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Oh, no. Nope. That does not mean there's a flag on the play. What does that mean? That means the home team has called a timeout. Oh, yeah. Because here we are again. This game has to be broken up into two halves. So I I could talk to these guys forever though. That's the problem. We get these legends of yacht rock on. We just we can't get them to shut up. We don't want them to shut up. It's well, they've got all the stuff that they want to talk about, and then you know I start asking questions about how you tuned your drums and things like that. So <laughs> and and I think that's interesting as well. But I don't think they always expect that. So it almost doubles the the amount of stuff. But I'm fine with it. If everyone else is fine with it, we'll just break it up again into two episodes, which means we have two lightning rounds. All the better. All the better. Well, shall we get to the first one? Let's do it. Hit it. All right. So it's been a great conversation so far. I have some uh, prepared lightning round that is mostly mostly topic appropriate and relevant. Okay. So why don't I kick things off? Okay. That sounds good. Mine is more of a traditional. I've gone back to the roots of our lightning round, and you'll see, okay. you'll see that as, as it progresses. Hmm. Okay. I don't know what that could possibly be. No, who does? Um, so eventually we start talking about the next record and I wanted to get your thoughts on this song in particular Okay. because it was not written by Christopher Cross. It was not written by the guys in the band. It was written by, uh, Burt Bacharach, Carol Bayer Singer, Sager, what is it? Carol Sager. <laughs> Sager. Uh, yeah. And somebody else, um, uh, no, Dudley Moore or somebody. I should get that right. Hold on. <laughs> Dudley Moore. Peter Allen, of course. Oh yeah. What are your th- What are your thoughts um, on the Arthur's theme? Best that I could. That best that you could do. Well, the best that I can do is say that it's a, a nice ballad. It's a strong song. Uh, I, even though he didn't write it, I guess he has on there as a co-writer. But uh, obviously, the boat is being yachty, though. No, but obviously with Burt Bacharach and Kel Bear Sager, they were probably the dominant writers. But yet somehow the song still sounds like a Christopher Cross song, not just because he's singing it, but writing wise, it still feels like it's something he could have written. Do I think of it as Yachty? I do not. Uh, his Certainly his ballad stuff drifts well out of the harbor for me. I, I, 
I know I go back to the question about sailing. I, I still do not hear that as a yacht rock song outside of the title of the song. Yeah. Well, uh, this tune in particular, I, I can't not think of it as the theme to Arthur, obviously. Well, that's so it doesn't true too. feel like yachty era appropriate, even though it's right in the times, but I, or time frame. So Michael Amardian is on this Michael Boddicker as well. Steve Lukather. David Hungate on bass, Jeff Picaro on drums, Paulino DaCosta on percussion, and of course, Ernie Watts with that killer sax solo. So the personnel is Yachty. I'm just torn on this song. It's essential in terms of personnel, for sure. Oh, God, yeah. So I don't know if I have an answer for my own question. Does it float your boat? No. All right. I guess I'll do a mild yes then just to tip the scales. Okay. Yep. All right, what do you got? What's so uh, back to the basics? Well, what I meant by back to the basics is that We've kind of modified a little bit of our categories sometimes, and we've talked about expanding our off the map into something else. And um, Float Your Boat originally started as Yacht or Not, and uh, kind of going back to there. Uh, there was okay. a song that's on the Yachtsky scale that based on the number it was given, it's a pretty resounding yes. So I want to get your opinion. I want to put you on the rack here and start cranking until you give us an answer. Michael Jackson's Rock With You. That's like not even a no-brainer. It is a no-brainer, but it's not even a question. To me, it's yeah. It's, a, it's given a 64 on the scale, and I just think that is a good 30 points higher than it belongs yeah i agree I, it's just so poppy r&b from the time just does i don't hear any elements even like i can hear elements in the girl's mind more than i can hear elements in that tune yeah and if there's anything that you would define as that track i wouldn't necessarily call it disco but it's certainly meant for dance floor and again i feel that that's counter to what yacht rock is so yeah all right well we differ with the ogs on that one apparently big time all right, Buried Treasure. Again, going back to the core of what our Buried Treasure was, which is potentially a song that you just missed maybe because it was an album track. We Sometimes we can get into bringing out obscure songs by obscure artists, and I'm going right back to the core of Michael McDonald in 1982. So we're talking about his first solo album called If That's What It Takes. And he's got a song on there co-written by Randy Goodrum, uh, Robin Ford plays the guitar solo on it and includes Jeff Percaro, Mike Percaro, Lukather, Michael O'Mardian. So it does connect there. Tom Scott. Uh, Maureen McDonald, which is Michael's sister, is on backups. Also on backups is Christopher Cross himself, Brenda Russell, Amy Holland. I mean, we're talking big time. And um, this song just grooves. This is exactly what Yacht Rock is to me, but it's a buried track that a lot of people don't know. And it's called That's Why. But I Uh, did you say that was Jeff Percaro on drums? I did. Mike Percaro on bass, too. So the brothers. Super tight, that rhythm section. That's what Yacht Isn't Rock it? should sound like right there. And I yeah, know it's not a hit, but he's he's an absolute, uh, you know, the stalwart of the genre, probably. So, yeah, that's a good deep cut, man. Yep. Buried treasure. Well, <clears throat> I'm going deep cut for my buried treasure as okay. well. And knowing that we were talking to Tommy Taylor 
mostly about the Christopher Cross album. I wanted to peek ahead. And so here's a little peek ahead to episode two when we talk about another page. Get more into that record a little bit. Um, more personnel's brought in, and you'll find out why it's difficult to figure out who played what on what tracks. So I don't know for sure who the guitarist is, but there is a buried treasure song called Words of Wisdom on the second record that is just absolutely beautiful. Well, that is the essence of a buried treasure. It's the last cut on the record, isn't it? Yeah. So who do you think that guitar player is? I know off air you said Luke. You, you said Luke, and I don't hear Luke in that at all. Um, That's the thing. is, If it is Luke, it's not exactly spot on brand for him. It goes counter to the logic. If you brought in a bunch of studio stud players on this album, why would Christopher play it? But that, to me, that Ooh. doesn't sound like Larry Carlton. That doesn't sound like Luke Gathur. It doesn't sound like one of those session guys. It, there's a, there's some things in there that feel just a little bit, how do I say this, raw or a little a little less refined than the precision you get from those other guys. This feels more like a, a sensibility of a guy who's not a session player. I don't know. Hmm. Well, there's a buried treasure within the buried treasure, and that's the outro solo, which is even better than this. So go ahead and listen to that. And then, uh, Tommy, hit us up on the back channel. I'm going to hit that right now. Okay. All right, so Tommy Taylor, hit us up on the back channel and tell us who that is again because yep. uh, we'd be lost without you. <laughs> All right. Yes, he's a fountain of knowledge. We'd be marooned. Okay. Well, I am going to, speaking of teasers for episode two, we're going to get into um, some of Tommy's later work with his buddy Eric Johnson. Right. And, man, you sent me this Tones record from 1986. It's yeah. just rocking. I just grabbed like one. I, I wanted to do you know a little bit of dive into Eric Johnson because I knew so little. So I just grabbed one at random. I said, oh, 86, that sounds good. Well, listen to how well the rhythm section, particularly Tommy's drums, keep this rocking beat going in a tune called Friends. Yeah, when I was listening to that, I was hearing like um, influences of Alex Lifeson or Andy Summers, you know, from Rush and the police, just that big, heavy chorus, heavy reverb, real chimey guitar. And I was, I hadn't listened to anything like that for a while, and it just caught me as really fresh. Yeah, yep. Guy by the name of Roscoe Beck on bass. He's killing it with Tommy there. Mm, yeah. Very good. All right. Well, let's move along to that is off the map. Yeah, but I don't have mine yet. Yeah, let's so here move we go. along to your off the map. Yeah, you're ready to move along right on out of here. Well, I've got one more for you. And often in the Yacht Rock 
uh, paradigm, you do not allow for anything that's too ballady. Going back to your question, maybe about Arthur's theme, and we talked about that with Think of Laura. This is a great, great yachty sounding record by a relatively unknown artist. And I guess the reason that it's off the map is because it's too ballady. Uh, the big hits, this is uh, David Roberts, who's who I'm talking about. You're familiar yeah. with David Roberts. Yeah. So the, probably the most well-known songs, the ones you see on playlists all the time, there's Wrong Side of the Tracks and Boys of Autumn. Those are the ones that I would call, quote, the hits because I see them turn up more often. But there's a great ballad on there produced by Greg Matheson. This is from 1982. The album is all dressed up, and the song is called Midnight Rendezvous. Great tune, great tune. Fun fact. Oh. That is on my Halloween on the Yacht playlist. Oh, Midnight. <laughs> midnight. Yes. yes. Wow. So that's how I know that tune, but that is a good one. You could put it on your um, upcoming uh, Valentine's you know, rendezvous, so Ooh, you might yes. be able to sneak it in there, too. But my only problem with that is I don't think it's off the map. I think that's Yachty. Other than the ballad nature. Yeah. 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 It's got everything else there. Cool. Well, I guess that brings us to the end of intermission, pretty much. Yeah. We'll uh, get, get popcorn, back to our... get your goobers and raisinets all set, and come back for... <laughs> they, <laughs> what sports game do you go to that they offer goobers and raisinets? Well, I was thinking movie intermission, but they don't even do those oh. anymore. <laughs> Wait, we already established this at time. Oh, jeez. All right, let's oh, get yeah. our stuff together. We'll get back. Mm. We'll be on the same page next week, Richard Page. And um, what? I guess until then, ahoy. Poloi. Just a hoy.